welcome to the Movie Scramble podcast. We are edging towards episode 30, which is very exciting, given that none of us thought we'd get beyond episode two. So thank you very much for, for staying with us. Today, I am joined by the whole gang. Simi, who's here under duress since he didn't want to watch the film that we're talking about. And John. John, how are you? Good, yes. Loving every single minute of the lockdown. I'm getting quite used to it now, which is rather strange. I thought I'd have gone completely manic or something at this point, but no, I'm kind of settling in for the long run, much to the amusement of my family, who haven't really noticed any change in my behaviour whatsoever. So it's, it's, all, it's all good. <laughs> Sammy, how are you? Yeah, I'm going to just, I'm, I'm good. Just to echo what John said, I've just adapted to lockdown life pretty well to the point that I know things are going to go back to some sort of normality in the next coming months, but I don't really want it to. I'm quite happy for things to be like this. I do miss the cinema. It'll be nice to get back there, but it turns out I don't miss the pub as much as I thought I did. And the idea of going and meeting people in groups again is just giving me anxiety, so I'm quite happy to stay in. Yeah, definitely echo those sentiments. I have no desire to rush out. Well, on today's episode, or tonight's episode, whenever you're listening to it, we are discussing the musical cultural phenomenon that has hit streaming services this past wee while. And no, we're not talking about Hamilton. We are, of course, talking about Univision, the story of fire sagas. Ever since we were children, we've had one dream. Winning the Eurovision Song Contest. This is Secret. We are Fire Saga. Who wants to hear Eurovision song? All of Iceland think we are a joke. That's not true. And my father is ashamed of me. No, he's not. He looked me up into the eyes and said, I am ashamed of you. Maybe he was drunk. He said, and you might think that I'm drunk, but I am it dead sober. Sammy's face is just lit up as we're talking about it. The film is obviously a, a loving homage to the Eurovision Song Contest, which was sadly cancelled this year, obviously owing to lockdown all over the world. And it stars Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams and Dan Stevens, to name but a few. And it basically tells the story of Lars and Sigrid, played by Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams, and their desire to represent Iceland from their small town of Husavik at the Eurovision Song Contest. The film sort of charts the highs and lows of what it means to be a competitor. It goes in for all the glitz and glamour and camp that you would expect of the competition itself and has some really fun special guest appearances. I guess that's probably all I can say about it just now without going into too much. There's some lovely views of, of Edinburgh and magically the Glasgow Hydro has transplanted itself to the end of the Royal Mile. But it's good to see in little parts of Scotland in a film. I'm one of those people that always gets really excited when you're like, I know that street. So, John, what did you think about it? Did you think it lived up to the sort of expectations of the contest itself or was it just not for you? I really enjoyed it. I was kind of reticent to watch in the first place because I'm a wee bit fed up with the whole Eurovision thing because of the way that it is now. It's it's, it's massive, I know, but it's the same every year. It, it doesn't seem to change at all, but this film has taken all the sort of best elements from Eurovision and basically ran with it. It's built on the songs which are peppered throughout it. It's just great, great material there. I mean, if you start off a film with a, a song called Volcano Man, then you know you're on fairly solid ground <laughs> as far as the comedy's going. It got me chuckling right away and it never really stopped. There were elements of the film that kind of slowed down and they, they didn't work quite so well, mainly Will Ferrell's attempts at really, really serious acting. But yeah, I loved the movie. I thought it was fantastic from start to finish. Jimmy, do you agree? You mentioned Hamilton there, and it's a shame I'm not reviewing that. <laughs> that'd be a lot more fun. I disagree entirely. I really didn't enjoy this film at all, and not because for the reasons you think either. I'm not a fan of Eurovision. I just don't really get it. It's not my thing. The songs in the movie were the best parts for me. The rest of it just didn't work. I thought tonally it was all over the place. Rachel McAdams and Will Ferrell were starring in different films for me. Whereas Will Ferrell was just playing Will Ferrell. It was a standard by the numbers Will Ferrell sports comedy. Just the Eurovision shoehorned in and rather be a sports star. He was a singer. I thought Rachel McAdams was very good in it. She had a very good performance. But 
again, I felt that she was in this most serious film where Will Ferrell was in some kind of parody send-up. Like I said, I thought tonally it was just all over the place. Uh, didn't know what it wanted to be. There were some bits I found quite funny. Like I said, I thought that the songs were really good, especially the big kind of song-off they had at the party. I thought it was excellently done. I like to be cameos for previous winners in that for Eurovision. Graham Norton doing the hosting and things, these things, but as a movie, it was just too long and I didn't think it was funny. Really? Where are you? <laughs> I, it should come to no surprise to either of you or anyone that knows me, I'm a big fan of, of Eurovision. It is a cultural highlight for me in the year. There's usually snacks and drinks and like we do our own commentary and stuff like that. I absolutely love it. So I was one, gutted that the competition wasn't going ahead this year and two, thrilled that I had some sort of replacement. I know you're saying that tonally it's all over the place, but so is the song contest itself. Like you literally go from one extreme to the other. It can be little old Russian ladies dancing to, you know, a long-haired flowing Viking built in the opera. I mean, it really is like the craziest show on earth. And I think that's why I appreciated this because it was quite chaotic. I do agree with what you were saying in terms of the dynamic between Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams because I felt like the scenes that they had to just act together and there wasn't really anything going on, i.e. nobody was like spinning around in a hamster wheel or nobody was bursting into song, it was a wee bit kind of chewing the scenery sort of thing. I just I just didn't feel like they worked. But again, that's because I don't watch Eurovision for serious conversation. I watch it because I want the over-the-top performances. For me, the standout was Dan Stevens. My only experience I've ever seen him act is Downton Abbey. And this couldn't get further than that. He was walking about with his Princess Diana haircut. His chest was out, it was sort of faintly glittered. He was strutting about in leather trousers, you know, whipping these guys on stage. But he's definitely not gay because there's no such thing as homosexuality in Mother Russia. Like, I loved all the one-liners. I loved the fact that Pierce Brosnan sounded like Swedish chef. Like, dude, just can't do accents at all. But it was just, it made it funnier. And I just, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I loved how kind of over the top and ridiculous it was because that, that's why I watch Eurovision. See, that's the thing for me as well. I didn't find it over the top and ridiculous. I felt like it kept pushing that it was going to be. Like, I thought Pierce Brosnan was quite comical in the role. And like, well, fair, but like I said, they were in a different movie completely. Mm-hmm. And then whenever Rich McAdams came in, it was like, right, let's make this kind of serious star is, no star response style movie because that's something very kind of... <laughs> The very kind of serious film, but story wise, it was like, oh, but the kind of the underdogs doing well in that, and that's fine. But I just felt that it was really kind of pushing towards at one point to be this kind of overblown parody, but it also wanted to be respectful of the Eurovision Song Contest itself. And it tried to meet in the middle, but when it met in the middle, it didn't really know what it wanted to do. And I just didn't think the chemistry of Will Ferrell and Rich McAdams was believable. I don't know if it's supposed to be a joke, the fact that it was so much older than a and then they kind of run and joke that, or maybe it's his sister, I found it really weird because it was quite clear that they were going to be romantically involved at some point. I just didn't find that. I just found it weird. That joke was weird, but it, without giving too much away, that joke was there to set up another joke later on in the in the film. And yeah, I mean, I get that if you're, are you, are you not a Will Ferrell fan? Like, do you not? Yeah, that's the thing. It's, I, I do. Like, I'm just, I'm very much, uh, I find them very hit and miss though. I can find them being the anchor man, one of the funniest mm-hmm. uh, people in the entire world. And then sometimes I feel he just phones it in, which I think was the case here. Yeah, no offence, Will, if you're listening, but I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure you took it very really seriously. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, Will Ferrell does have a real love for Eurovision. So his wife is Swedish, apparently, and she introduced him to Eurovision Song Contest. I'm not sure if it's broadcast in America or not, or if they've watched it maybe abroad or whatever, and apparently he does go to the, the live shows and tries to make a, a habit of going on a yearly basis to, to see the different acts. And I think that's quite obvious in some of the pastiches that they bring in to the, the film. You're like, oh, that's definitely meant to be like so-and-so or the kind of previous acts. And you can see that in the, the Dan Stevens character. He's quite obviously a parody of, I've forgotten his name, it's the Russian act from a couple of years ago who came on stage with the very much the kind of 80s look but with the leather trousers and there was all sorts of rumours about his sexuality and obviously with him being from Russia there was no pressure there but yeah I mean I would say the soundtrack was was excellent that's definitely one thing it's got going for it which is the one thing we can all agree on. John did you have a favourite song in particular? I did like the line of love I thought that was particularly (laughs) good just I read an interview with the director of the film and he was saying that when they were coming up with the, the various songs that he had a few notes on them and one of them was for the Russian one he wanted to be something big and bombastic, something, something kind of operatic. So the composer went away 
and hired an opera singer to do the song <laughs> so, that, so that it would be really like totally over the top and when I heard that at first I just thought that's just fantastic it just works particularly well there was another one in it as well it was was it Bulgaria or something and they were meant to be a sort of a lordy style yeah. act and it was them and then the girl comes on and does the all the nice sweet vocals in between it and I just I totally burst out laughing when I saw that because it's just such a, a shift in tone and that's exactly what they do in the Eurovision Song Contest because they're trying to cater to such a big audience and everything. Yeah there was a lot of really good songs that the sing-off was pretty good. I don't know an awful lot of Eurovision stars so some of it was a bit missed on me but it came across really well and it was quite a good sort of central number and then obviously we had the big finale number at the end i'm, I'm not giving anything away here there's no spoilers there's a finale song <laughs> in the eurovision song contest film and it all worked oh came across really nicely i thought i was i was surprised but then i really shouldn't be because it was like an officially sanctioned film it was supposed to premiere the night after the eurovision song contest actually screened this year because obviously like it cancelled they just put it back slightly and did it in june instead but they'd obviously got the rights from them and they'd actually filmed i think it was in tel aviv they actually did filming as well so that's where the audience is so even though it's edinburgh and it's the hydro some of the interiors were actually done in tel aviv as well in front of a eurovision audience that's why they were all so into it shall we say you mean that you makes... couldn't convince thousands of glaswegian extras to you know, paint a swedish flag on their face and an israeli flag and just jump up and down <laughs> yep no need to honestly audience, yeah. when i was watching it i was like was it a casting call for this? Did I miss something? Because I would have totally been at Glitter Cape. I would have been there. <laughs> Is it your weekend um, cape or just your weekday cape? Oh, the weekend cape. You've got to All get right. the good stuff out for Eurovision, that's for sure. <laughs> See, that actually makes a lot of sense to me then, uh, how I feel the kind of parody side that had been watered down. Uh, so it's like, right, don't take the piss at Eurovision too much here. You take the piss at your Pharaoh and Iceland and all those other things surrounding it, but treat the overall movie with respect and I was just like well it's not really kind of working for the kind of for the kind of film I thought it was going to be you were saying that the first song Volcano Man and things like that and the other songs that Fire Saga had I only find that ridiculous or even that bad I thought they were just very okay generic kind of pop songs and then it, they could have easily sorted the Eurovision for me and I wouldn't have bad than I lived and the joke being they're supposed to be terrible but obviously they get kind of like a good reaction eventually and stuff but I didn't think they were terrible enough to be laughable the way they were supposed to be in the film. Mm. People kept referring to them. I mean, even the scene during the qualification round, uh-huh. and Graham Norton's like, oh, this isn't terrible. And it's like, they're not terrible, though. They're just like Eurovision acts. They can, they're, very, they're very generic. Yeah. I think, obviously, the joke there was the comparison between who... Like, so Iceland are torn between do they put forward a, a good act knowing finally they could win and they have to host it and that would bankrupt them as a nation or do they just put forward like what these think are like like two yokels like a, a wedding band or something that and we'll, we'll just not win that's okay and I think that's I think I get what you're saying I think the film is funny if you watch Eurovision but it's not funny making fun of you because you watch it it's funny because you recognize the tropes and I think that definitely has been a conscious choice there to not essentially alienate the audience that, that do watch this competition I think that it's been like a sort of loving send-up as opposed mm-hmm. to oh, you watch Eurovision this is how terrible it is and you know that's perfectly fine I, I, I don't mind films that do that I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect them to be disrespectful to Eurovision fans have you seen Galaxy Quest nope. yes the Galaxy Quest is uh, sci-fi that it could have easily been taking the piss out of Star Trek fans and that kind of culture, but it doesn't. It is really respectful of fan culture, but the movie is also very, very self-aware that I didn't think this was. Galaxy Quest, for example, is very happy to send itself up and be the butt of its own joke, where here, I think it's a kind of case that, no, 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 Eurovision is not a joke. Treat it seriously. Treat it with respect. I mean, it's I not a joke. <laughs> But it could have been a it could have poked fun at itself a little more. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. It's obviously trying to tread the line between, as you say, sort of making fun of itself, but also sort of lovingly pointing out the stereotypes that that happen every year. And I do think, I mean, it got away with quite a few barbed one-liners. You know, there's a comment of, you know, she's British. Yeah, she's really good. She's really popular. But you know, she's British, so Neil Poil. And there was yeah. a, a lot of that kind of, you know, 
not even insider jokes because you don't even have to watch Eurovision to to know those kind of lines or whatever and I think that it definitely sort of appealed to people who watch Eurovision seriously because it had all the guest appearances and embarrassingly I was one of those people who was going oh my god that's John Lundbeck and that's Katrina Burst and that's Alexander Ryback because I am that sad but equally like it's for Chris watching it who he actually thought it was going to be his idea of hell but he could still laugh and he didn't necessarily know the jokes but he appreciated the setup. I mean, the thing is, I actually recognise a lot of the jokes in that aspect. Uh, I, I, I liked that fact. He didn't about that. It wasn't appealing necessarily to diehard Eurovision fans. It was just pop, it was pop culture references that were quite easy to pick up. You said the Nil Poir thing, bits like that. But yeah, I, I just felt it could have kind of maybe poked more fun at itself in terms of that, rather than Will Ferrell consistently being the butt of the joke. Yeah, you know, and the getting listen that I have, like... Will Ferrell owes me because I sat through Holmes and Watson. Like <laughs> I feel like that guy owes me a personal debt. And this went some way to to making up for it. But John, where do where do you tread on this? Where do you do you think the film sort of falls short of of not making fun of itself enough? Sort of yes, as a sort of an official version, if you like. Eurovision counter to what some people think. They they're very aware of how kitsch it is and the reputation that it has, and it plays up to that. The official competition plays up to that every year, and they've been doing it more and more over the last sort of decade, making it more of a spectacle. And you know, hey, have a Eurovision party, you know, you know, bring along foods from different European nations, you know, drinking, oh, yeah. have a good time, all that <laughs> kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so they do play on that. So there was a certain amount of license to poke fun at Eurovision. It didn't really. Yes, it could have been a lot sharper. It could have been a lot. It could have been a lot shorter as well. It was over two hours long, which is pushing it for a comedy. Yes, yes, it was. It could easily have lost thirty minutes. You're you're talking about. It could easily have lost at least one of the subplots, but not the elves subplot. I really liked that. I was wondering where that was all going to go, but it paid off very, very well. And looking back on it, without really giving anything away. I mean, this is a comedy film, and it's quite a light comedy film. There's a hell of a body count. Yeah. Think about it. It's, it's quite brutal at times. Yeah. Because when I was sitting watching, I was sitting watching with Leslie, and something happened, and she said, well, that got dark very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, it did. Uh, I, there was elements and things like that. It, it worked well, but it it was very respectful to the source material. You could You could tell it was. It wasn't going to go so far as to ridicule it because that's not what it's about as you say will ferrell has a love for eurovision with his his connections and the fact that he, he spends three months of the summer in sweden and it coincides with his time actually watching eurovision and all that sort of stuff and he actively campaigned to get the rights to do this film i think he had to convince him a couple of times that he wasn't just going to do a complete you know parody ripping it up to shreds or anything like, that. like he's obviously done with other things that he's been involved in but yeah it was you, you can't really complain it was a film that I was quite happy to watch and it was a film that kind of it, was, it fits the sort of time it's perfect for home viewing you know I, I would never go to the cinema to see this film but the fact that it's on Netflix I would quite happily sit and watch that it was a night a reasonable way to pass a couple hours definitely was and if you don't come away from it singing yeah yeah ding dong there is something <laughs> gravely wrong with you so i mean it's safe to say i would obviously recommend it i am die hard eurovision fan sammy what about you would you recommend it i wouldn't know um i didn't really i didn't find it, I find it that funny um like i said the eurovision stuff and it, it, it's just it's not me being snobbish towards it. i thought the eurovision stuff and the songs and that were the best thing about it as a comedy, I just didn't find it funny. And as John mentioned, it was just way too long. John, would you recommend it? I would recommend it, yes. It's an, an affable way to spend a couple of hours. It's never going to win any awards. Will Ferrell is never going to win any awards for his acting in this film anyway. But yes, it was, it was entertaining. And that's really all you can ask for at the moment, isn't it? Absolutely. Anyone as I say, I just I thought it was like the song the soundtrack has not been off my spotify this week i've not actually been listening to old movie scandal podcasts this change i have actually listened <laughs> to the, the eurovision soundtrack so check it out on netflix if you want guys obviously there are other musical alternatives on streaming services this week that might grab your attention but i think this is one worth a watch if you want something a wee bit light 
So since we talked about Eurovision, the story of Fire Saga, we decided to spend the rest of the podcast discussing our favourite modern musicals. And what do we mean by a modern musical? Well, it excludes all the classics like your Rodgers and Hammerstein and your on Time and your Bernstein and all the rest of it because we wanted to bring things kind of up to date to match the setting of Fire Saga. I believe Simmy, the musical hater, is that first? <laughs> what have you chosen? I don't know about this uh, reputation being as some kind of like monster that hates musicals and music and joy. <laughs> no, I didn't say you hated joy. <laughs> <laughs> Jury's out in that one, actually. Yeah. Do you know, I was actually attempting to pick Hamilton for this, but I wanted to pick something with more kind of traditional film wise. And as much as a Hamilton movie is, is amazingly done. It is still a stage show, so I thought I'd be cheating a little. But my first choice is A Nightmare Before Christmas, which I first seen this film in 1993 when it was released. I didn't see it again for another 10 years, and it wasn't until I was older. I really appreciated it. I watched it every year at Christmas. I went to see the live stage show last year with Danny Elfman, Catherine O'Hara, Ken Page, all singing. And yeah, I just love this. It's... The animated tale of Jack Skellington. He's voiced by two different people. He's got his actor voice, who is Chris Sarandon, but Danny Elfman does the, the singing parts. And Jack Skellington's the pumpkin king of Halloween Town. Uh, but he wants to bring some kind of a different kind of festive cheer, shall we say, to his life and tries to recreate Christmas with inevitably tragic results. Uh, this was this is usually billed as Tim Burton's Night Before Christmas, and although the original characters are created by him. It, it didn't have a lot of input into the movie. It was directed by Henry Selick. The screenplay was by Carolyn Thompson. Henry Selick, in interviews, you can hear him get a bit kind of pissy when Tim Burton's influence gets mentioned quite a lot because although his DNA runs all the way through it, it's very much a Henry Selick movie in terms of all the kind of creative input that was in it. But the songs in this are amazing. It's so memorable. It has the incredible privilege of being not only a Christmas movie, but one you could watch at Halloween. I was going to say, which camp do you fall into? <laughs> it's both. I mean, it does it does beautifully just kind of straddle that kind of paradigm, so to speak, very easily. Uh, I absolutely love this movie. The, the, the songs are absolutely brilliant. It's so memorable. And it's really short as well. It's about 70 minutes, I think. It's just very, very short. The animation's brilliant. All stop motion stuff. And despite being almost 30 years old, it's aged really, really well. Really has. I didn't realise it was that. It came out in what? Ninety three. No, that's a really good pick. I mean, I love that that movie. It's kind of, it's almost like a sort of, I don't know, it's like an old fashioned kind of bittersweet sort of neo gothic romance. It's it's got everything in it, and the songs are absolutely fantastic. And I love the Iggy Boogie. As well. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of these films that's just grown over the years, hasn't it? It's got such a big audience still. When you, you think about it, so many films just come and go without very much fanfare, musicals as well as regular films, but the likes of The Nightmare Before Christmas just keeps getting bigger and bigger. There's so much merchandise, and like you say, there's live shows and everything. It's just it's phenomenal. Really, really yeah, good. Yeah, speaking of the live show idea, but you're saying that the idea just kind of grown and grown. I mean, that was last year. I went to see the live show at the Hydro, not in Edinburgh, and <laughs> you've, you've got the original cast able to perform it, that's incredible in itself. And yeah, it's just, like I said, it's one of my favourite soundtracks as well for a movie. Beautiful story, wonderfully done. Can't recommend it enough. John, what's your first choice? My first pick is the 2007 musical Hairspray. It was a time of tradition. A time of values. A time... People who are different, their time is coming. To shake things up. Not in Baltimore, it isn't. Hurry up, Penny, we're missing yes. Starla. Holly. Noreen. Doreen. And I'm late. And I'm Motormouth Maybell, pitching rhythm your way. Dancing on that show is my dream. <laughs> Want to be one of the nicest kids in town? Cut school tomorrow and come audition. No one in this house is auditioning for anything. But Mom! Uh... Amber? Save your personal life for the camera, sweetie. Oh, shiny. It... <laughs> it's a film that was 
originally done in 1988 by John Waters, one of my favourite directors. He's a bit of a genius as far as I'm concerned, and he's got a, he rocks a fine moustache at all times, which is obviously always a plus. This musical version is based on the stage play, which again sourced the John Waters film. It is a story of Tracy Turnblad, who is a 16-year-old heavy set girl now i'm just taking us directly from the description of the film i'm not, <laughs> I'm not uh, making any assumptions here but that's one of the the things that it tackles basically she wants to be a dancer on the corny collins show and she is basically not allowed to do it because the the woman who runs the tv station is a sizist as well as a racist because she's a racist because of the fact that she doesn't like blacks and they only have one day in the month when they have black dancers on the Connie Collins show. And it's called Negro Day as well, just so just in case you're in any doubt about <laughs> what it's going on. So Tracy starts to hang about with some of the kids who are taking part in Negro Day because she's involved. I think she gets detention and she meets them there and they all start getting along. Uh, she, she meets up with various people who are involved with the Corner Collins show and manages to get on the show and basically tries to work her way in and literally break down barriers, including the barrier that's in the middle of the hall during the show at one point where the, the black dancers and the white dancers are actually separated. And then it all just kicks off with race rights and all sorts of stuff after that. It's a fantastic musical. It's got some really, really great numbers and it's got some fantastic dancing in it as well. If we ever do something about dancing, then it would be right up there in my, at least my honourable mentions for a dance film as well. It's so much fun in it. I like the idea that John Waters, is, he appears very early on and as a flasher in some of the opening scenes of it, which is just hilarious because he looks, he could, he pulls off the look very well. It's great performances as well. I mean, if you look at the cast list for this, you're talking about Nicky Blonsky in the, the lead role, but in the support roles, you have John Travolta as her mother. Now, this part was originally played by Divine in the original film. So for John Travolta to actually make an impact on a role that Divine pretty much made his own is absolutely amazing. Travolta's brilliant in this. He's really, really good as the, the mother who has the sort of size issues herself. She's she's very conscious of how she looks and it, that kind of reflects on the attitudes that she has and the attitudes that her daughter has as well. And, and the other people involved as well, you've got Michelle Pfeiffer, Christopher Walken, James Marsden, Queen Latifah and Zac Efron as well, so <laughs> you can't really go wrong. Zac Efron is particularly good in this, but again, I could have probably done a Zac Efron list for musicals or modern musicals, probably just being High School Musical 1, 2 and 3, so... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, brilliant film. Loved every minute of it, and it's one that whenever it's on the TV, they just go, yep, I'm just going to sit and watch this, thanks very much. Yeah, that's such a great choice. And every time I hear you can't stop the beat, like you actually have to stop yourself from like dancing along. John Travolta is crazy good. <laughs> John's away, he's away. John Travolta's so good in this. And so is James Marsden. Like, I think he's got quite an underrated role as obviously Corny Collins, the host of the TV show. But I think he's, he's, you can see that sort of slightly crazy Republican glare that he has in his eyes as he delivers this show to the kids of Baltimore. But it's a really, really brilliant, really, really brilliant choice. And have you seen that, Simi? I have, yeah, I haven't seen it in years, mind you. Um, it could have been long after it first came out. I watched it. Yeah, I remember having a lot of fun, though. Okay, so I am up next, and my choice is something that, again, has become like a total phenomenon. It's spawned stage shows, sing-along viewings, you know, you name it. it it's done it sing-along soundtracks. It's actually had its soundtrack re-released with different artists. So my first choice is 2017's The Greatest Showman. It stars Hugh Jackman as P.T. Barnum, obviously the circus owner or the guy who wants to be a circus owner and dreams of taking his travelling show all over the world and having a, creating a legacy for himself. It also co-stars Zendaya, Kiala Settle, Michelle Williams, Zac Efron as well pops up in here. I was late to the party. I didn't see it at the cinema and I just bought it on Blu-ray because everyone was talking about it. And it's one of those films that literally from the opening beats of the song just drags you right in and you will find yourself singing along to songs that you've never heard before. 
it's so uplifting. You know, it, it has come under a lot of scrutiny because essentially Barnum was known for, you know, treating his acts very poorly and, you know, he was a racist and, you know, he had terrible living conditions for the people that he hired. And obviously with this being a sort of lighthearted musical that's just sort of brushed aside and it's all about dreams and the underdog and everybody coming together in the face of adversity. And there's a lot of songs about, you know, loving yourself and diversity and coming from opposite sides of the divide. And it's just, it's cheesy, but it's so good. Like there's not a bad song in it. Listen to the soundtrack, there's literally not a bad song in it. You know, you've got everything from these sort of big power ballads, you know, this is me or never enough where you've got the sort of like poppy ones that come along at the end like from now on and I had the privilege of seeing Mr Hugh Jackman at the Hydro also not in Edinburgh earlier on last year and he, he just did the full set he's absolutely incredible and I think it was a bit of a passion project for him the company wanted to do for a long time and he finally got all the actors together and he finally got the book and the score together and it's just oh it's just a proper feel-good movie with just such a good soundtrack i take it you guys have both seen it it was a bit of a phenomenon when it came out yeah it was one of those things when it first came out i just didn't really have an interest and in i didn't think much of it from the trailers and that but people kept going on about it and on about it and i seen it in the cinema but it was quite late on its run as well i think it was like it came out in christmas and i'd put to see it in april because <laughs> it was still in the cinema <laughs> at that point and it felt like it and yeah, as you say, from the opening kind of number, you, you know if it's going to be for you or not. And it's a really catchy, and the song just kind of drags you in. As you say, it's not a biography. It's not a historical reenactment of this guy's real life. That's a different argument for another time. As a standalone musical, it's very well done. It's it's great. It's very joyful. It's just very kind of cheery. You kind of leave and it's, it's very feel-good. It's a very feel-good movie. And it works. Yep. I thought I would hate this film. And I didn't. I thought it was fantastic. I was really reticent to see it. I didn't see it at the cinema, despite it being there for, as you say, it was about five months. It was hanging about the top 10 films, which is just incredible. It was one of these films that got roundly slated, I think, on its release, critically, yeah. critically panned. And yet it seemed to hit with audiences and it just stayed there. Like you say, there's been a soundtrack album. There's been a covers album as well. And you can't really go wrong with Hugh Jackman and, of course, Zac Efron. Again, their piece together is really good, just the two of them. I think they have quite good on-screen chemistry in a bro sort of way, you know, not in a, any other sort of way. But, you know, I'm sure there's some fan fiction out there that covers that sort of thing anyway. Fan fiction for everything. <laughs> you just have to look hard enough. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it really works. It definitely does. And... Like I say, it's it's joyful. It gives you a nice wee tingle when you go, yeah, well, right. It's maybe not the, the best film I've ever seen in my life, but it's definitely one that I would recommend for somebody to watch just because it's it's a lot of fun and the musical numbers are really good. Vinny, your next pick? I went with a classic from my childhood and Little Shop of Horrors. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. And a plant. Feed me all night long. How am I supposed to keep on feeding you? Yes! Interesting enough, is uh it's the movie is based off the off-Broadway musical, which itself was based off Roger Corman's 1960 comedy horror movie, which is not a musical. This is one of the earliest films I can remember watching, and I just had it in video, and I would watch it constantly. Stars Rick Moranis, Ellen Green, Steve Martin, you've got Levi Stubbs as the voice of the plant Audrey too, who Rick Moranis is this like, nerdy florist who finds this alien plant and basically feeds it until it's a crazy size and discovers that it can talk and it can sing and it wants to take over the world and be fed humans and it's totally off the wall fucking crazy but the songs are amazing it's just so so good and the film is just it is like a broadway musical but all broadway in this case it's like a stage play the whole way it's done the set design nothing's supposed to look real it looks totally i wouldn't say kind of surreal but it's just it, it's clearly aware of what it is it's very very funny um it's got a cracking cameo by bill murray uh, who goes to a dentist? He's just some kind of masochist that wants Steve Martin's dentist to 
like inflict those kind of root canal treatment and stuff for him. And so the scene's only like a minute long, and it's just absolutely show stealing. But Steve Martin steals the show as the dentist. He's got a slick back hair, the leather jacket, and the motorbike, and he's this real badass, cool guy. But the dentist, <laughs> <laughs> the least coolest like, profession you can think of, and has has like a main song in it. But be the dentist, funnily enough, is, is great. But yeah, I, I can't recommend this film enough. Again, it's just, uh, I haven't seen it in years, mind you. I need to go back and watch it again. It's just so much fun. I mean, I'm just, I'm smiling even just thinking about it because I can still hear the songs in my head so clearly. Have you yeah. both seen it? Yeah. Yeah, I'm just, I'm laughing at what you're saying, because, like, the set does literally look like, if you blew on it, it would fall it down. It's like, yeah, it looked really, like, cheap, and, yeah, Steve Martin is outstanding. that. I just remember the first time seeing it, and the first time the plant spoke, and I was like, okay, this is where we're going with this. And it just, it's so crazy, but you just go with it. And the puppetry is so great as well. It's uh, Frank Cosdirects, and it looks absolutely amazing. And it's like, it's like a great scene, Thomas Steve Martin. They jumps off his motorbike, and it's still going. He turns around and looks at it, and it stops. He's got kind of Elvis, like, um... <laughs> It's like Elvis meets Rebel Fit a Cause, meets uh, James Dean type idea, all kind of merged into one. It's absolutely fantastic and so like, crazily over the top and ridiculous. Um, it was actually an alternate ending for this movie, which test audiences didn't like. It was actually based on the, the musical, where the plant wins. This is a slight spoiler. The plant wins and takes over the world. <laughs> it's really <laughs> dark and brutal. And it does, it's on YouTube, there's a black and white blockprint of it, and it's worth watching because I'm glad I didn't go with that ending. It's better to have the happy, yeah. <laughs> the happy ending. It's a feel really, good <laughs> musical, yeah. I absolutely love this movie. It's got an amazing cast. Uh, so, so some cameos by John Candy and James Belushi. Also, and Christopher Guest make me cameos here and there. I can't recommend that enough. It's just so good. And it's, I think it's still on yours to this day. It's not got the same longevity as, say, Nightmare Before Christmas in terms of pop culture, but it's a very much a cult movie. And, yeah, I don't think it's really talked about enough these days. I think that one of the reasons it's got so much longevity is because it's kind of set in the 50s, isn't it? Sort of 50s, early yeah. 60s, like, say, with the, the biker aspect and all that. And because of that, it was already nostalgic. So... It's not something that's going to go out of date because it's set around about a certain period and it's, it kind of plays on all the old sort of B-movie sci-fi tropes as well, you know, with things coming from outer space and all that. And the plant is just fantastic. And I, I think Levi Stubbs has got such a good voice anyway, singing and talking, and his songs are probably the best of them as far as I'm concerned because he is obviously a professional singer, whereas some of the others may not have terrific voices but it's just enthusiasm for the whole thing that just kind of shines through really doesn't it yeah go back to levi stubbs there i mean he's right his, his voice is absolutely phenomenal and it's just so stealing songs but his comic timing is very good as well he's, he's speaking parts as the plant just kind of having back and forth banter with rick moranis you've got this kind of buddy comedy at part at times with rick moranis is playing the straight man it's just really funny as well, it's just, it's just, it's totally ridiculous over the top. It's got a lot of weekend nods and send ups to like the sci fi uh, genre and that, but it again, compared to kind of the Eurovision, it's, it does it very respectfully. It's never there to just take the piss out of it came before and where its original source material is. It's very kind of respectful if it is sending up a little because it's based on a Roger Corman movie. Come on. Mm. Yeah, right enough, yeah, of course. But it's got that sort of pulpy feel to it as well, but at the same time, it's like it's funny, it's got the, the sort of big numbers and stuff like that as well. But as you say, John, it totally picked up on the people, some people seeing that and it came out were already nostalgic for the stuff that it's alluding to, and that is part of its like appeal. And the same with Greece, you know, when it came out in what was it, 78, and it was harking back to just like 30 years ago or whatever prior to that. My second pick is a very recent film. It is the 2016 film La La Land from director Damien Chazelle. Now, obviously, uh, there's been a lot of column and she's written about this film. It's one that harks back to the golden days of musicals, especially the likes of An American in Paris. It's chock full of songs, dancing, a lot of comedy in it as well. There's obviously a love story in the middle of it. The story itself basically is Mia and Sebastian. She is a struggling actress and he is a struggling jazz musician who wants better things to, than to be doing Christmas songs in a lounge 
and they meet up and they try and basically have a life together and it works out for a while and then it doesn't work out for a while and then maybe it did at the end you just don't know it's all very up in there this is just lovely this film from the production design up it's full of lovely coloring it just looks superb and the fact that the the two main leads ryan gosling and emma stone are not regarded as being musical artists in the way that in stage i know uh, emma stone has done a certain amount of on stage work but they don't really have that reputation so for them to come in to do something like this it felt very naturalistic in the way that they would approach the songs and the way that they would approach the dancing as well there's a scene in the hollywood hills the, the praise scene where they're talking about uh, what's the song, A Lovely Night, it's called, and they do their dance in this sort of half-dark, half-light environment, which I think is the magic hour they, they filmed it in over a couple of nights. And it doesn't look like the most professional. It's not an austere type of performance, but because of that, it's just, there's just so much to it because it's, it feels more naturalistic. It feels like something like normal people could possibly do. Obviously, they're very, very talented people as well. It, it elates you. I've seen this maybe four or five times now. I saw it maybe about three times within the space of about three months, which is quite something. I don't normally watch films in that sort of way, but this just kind of struck something with me and I just wanted to go back and see it again and again and again. It, pretty much perfect musical as far as I'm concerned. I actually haven't seen it, which is unusual for me because I love musicals. But it just again, it's just kind of bypassing cinema. But it is on my watch list. I do love Ryan Gosling. I do love Emma Stone, and I like the kind of things that you're saying about the fact that it's almost kind of not perfect and not polished and not professional. That kind of makes you want to watch it even more. But unfortunately, I actually have. That's brilliant. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. And. Again, kind of looking at it, but it didn't really appeal to me in terms of the actual film itself. Because of the director and the cast, I was like, oh, I'll give it a shot. So I love Whiplash. Whiplash is like one of my favourite films of the last 10 years. Absolutely brilliant. And I loved this. Absolutely loved it. And I don't want to go into spoilers since you've not seen it, especially maybe, but see like the last five minutes. It's just incredible storytelling. It's almost like a short film in itself, isn't it? The yeah. Last, the last sequence of it. I mean, the, the fact is that it was only the success of Whiplash that enabled him to make this. He had written this years before, and they shopped it around various studios and couldn't even get it made. There was nobody willing to entertain it, saying musicals are just of the past. You, you just can't make a musical that will really make any any sort of money anymore. In, in fact, the Hollywood Reporter actually hit, ran a headline saying musicals are dead, which is something they probably don't publicise anymore, <laughs> considering the success of this and other films that have come along behind it. Just they've been phenomenally successful on the back of this just because there is an audience out there people want to watch this sort of stuff and more power to them you know you should keep doing it yeah okay we're never going to get back to the sort of you know turnabout stage that they were at maybe in the sort of mid 40s to early 60s but i do i, oh, I love a musical like there's some if i could get a main person into song in everyday life i mean the neighbors would complain but <laughs> i probably would do it my next pick is from 2004 and it's from the recently departed Joel Schumacher is of course his adaptation of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera. Phantom came to the London stage I believe in the 80s with the role of Phantom eh, originated by Michael Crawford from Some Mothers Do Have Him which seems a bit odd he wouldn't be my first pick for mysterious and sexy but okay and obviously the main part of Christine Dyes is played by Lloyd Webber's muse eh, Sarah Brightman. In the film, the roles are taken on by Gerard Butler, yes, that Gerard Butler, and Amy Rossum, who has since gone on to find work in the US adaptation of Shameless. It kind of captures everything I wanted it to about the stage show. The stage show is, is gothic, there's lots of, you know, velvets and lace, and there's crashing chandeliers, and there's little smoky scenes and stuff like that. It's very sort of, it's an over-the-top sort of gothic romantic love story about obviously the Phantom, who is obsessed with the singer Christine Dye. It's got a really good cast, likes of Patrick Wilson and Minnie Driver and Simon Cowell pops up as well. And it is so beautifully shot. Like the music of the night scene as Christine goes into the Phantom's lair is stunning. And it's not like, I know Schumacher gets a rough time for his 
you know, Batman and Robin kind of camp and kitsch. This is the right side of camp and kitsch. It's really lovingly told. And I think, I would say it's up there with the stage show. I'm not going to say it's better, but it's definitely up there. Jenner Butler is actually a very good singer. I think he does real justice to the role. And Emmy Rossman is just absolutely breathtaking. It's not an easy part for a, a female singer. And she just, she's totally flawless in it. And she does, she looks like a little China doll. She's absolutely perfect. I don't think it was met with much acclaim at the box office. I could be wrong. But I think it's a really good adaptation of the stage show and quite faithful as well. I, I really, really enjoyed it. Have any of you guys seen it? I have not. <laughs> nope, never seen it. I've... Oh my God, can we put this on record? I've seen something <laughs> that both of you haven't. <laughs> I knew this would be my I... week to shine. <laughs> See, I, I thought this film was panned. It's oh, just we mentioned there regarding the, the box office. I, I think I thought it was a, a commercial and critical failure. And... Yeah, that's what I mean. I don't think it did too yeah. well. It's a very niche, it's a very niche subject. I think you'd have to probably have great love for Andrew Lloyd Webber. To, to go and see or maybe just great love for the show but I think it's really well done as I say Jenner Butler in particular is a real surprise he is very brooding very sexy and actually just a really good singer good you Demi your last pick I have went with a stone cold undisputed classic I have went with Grease 2 what <laughs> I was so excited then you pissed all over it <laughs> I I absolutely love this film. It stars Michelle Pfeiffer and Maxwell Caulfield. Nobody else should really recognise, apart from Christopher McDonald, who's been in a lot of big comedy movies, including Happy Gilmore, is Shooter McGavin. And it's set two years after the first Grease, and we've got new T-Birds, we've got new Pink Ladies, and we've got a new foreign student in the, the guise of Maxwell Caulfield is Michael, who's Sandy for the first movie's cousin, and her being Australian... He's English. There's no explanation for this whatsoever. It just it just can't be American for whatever reason. And he's a new guy at school and he's nerdy and he's geeky and he's kind of fish out of water. But he's got a real big crush on Michelle Pfeiffer, who's too cool for school. She's the leader of the pink lady. She can't receive red people like him. So he reinvents himself as a motorcycle vigilante <laughs> to, <laughs> to help win her heart. And... This film is absolutely mental. Now, I'm not going to lie and say this film's good. It's not. It's awful. It's absolutely terrible. I genuinely do like the songs, even if some of them are questionable in terms of their subject, like uh, reproduction, which That's is... That's um, the only song I can remember from this movie. <laughs> and they've got a cracking song called Who's That Guy? Where they're all at the bowling, and the evil gang attack the, the T-Birds and separate one of them. And Michael, in full kind of like vigilante mode, makes his debut and saves him. So they're all singing, Who's That Guy? And it's a great bit with all this, Who's That Guy? The Man in the Cycle. And it cuts to Michael, who is singing his head and goes, What would they say if they knew it was Michael? And I thought, It's not a line. It's not a line that bothers me. It's the fact that I know you get the suspense and disbelieving musicals, so the fact that people just bust out a song and it's very like nod to the camera and stuff like that. But he's continuing the song in his head. And it's absolutely incredible because it, it then has this whole kind of Lewis Lane Superman Clark Kent dynamic where she loves the cool rider, but she has no time for Michael. And unlike Superman and Clark Kent, where Lois learns to love the real man, Michelle Pfeiffer has no interest in the real Michael. It's only when she finds out that he's been this cool guy all along, she's an interest in him. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely terrible. Uh, the, I'm just going to go with spoilers. Fuck it. But there's a scene where you think he's died. So they have this girl show because fuck a student being dead, you know. And they have this like, lure out at the end because it's based in Hawaii for some reason. And the bad guys, who are also the bad guys of the first film, they don't have motorbikes now. They've sold their cars. In fact, they lost their car in the race. So they bought motorbikes. Oh, I don't think they're at school, but that's oh. questionable in itself because you've still got a uh, Frenchie who's back at the school for some reason for some continuity of the, the movies. And like Michael reappears. And, oh, it's, it's, I've, I can't go over the plot. A motorcycle vigilante. It's incredible. And you've got the famous musical uh, scene with Michelle Pfeiffer saying that she wants a cool rider and she's climbing the ladder. And honestly, you need to see this film, Mary. It's... Oh, I've seen it. Yeah, I've um, seen it. Yeah. Yeah, it was on like ITV2 or something one afternoon when it was wee. I was like, oh, Grease 2, because I've seen Grease and loved it. Did not love Grease 2. And Reproduction I mean, is the only song that I can remember 
I find it, I find it, this film, it's like a parody of Greece. It really is. It's not supposed to be. It's just so bad that it is, it's terrible, but it's so much fun. And it more or less killed Maxwell Caulfield's career, but done nothing wrong for Michelle Pfeiffer, bizarrely. So, you know, maybe she was just a bit more talented than they end up. No, I've, for some reason, it, I thought I had, but this rings absolutely no bells whatsoever. I think I would have remembered some of the elements you're talking about. Please. I do want to watch it now, though, yeah. <laughs> Please watch it. It is funny. I think the gang is called the Psycho Lords as well, which is, I don't know, even just more mental. But I mean, yeah, it's just. If you, if you take it in fact of the first Cruise film and what that's about, and then you, you look at this plot synopsis for this, and you're like, what? <laughs> Are they, what were they on? I think it's a lot of It's almost like it's got bad that Sandy had to change herself at the at the end of the first Cruise. They thought, oh, we'll make the guy, you know, change himself to attract someone this time. That'll be the twist. <laughs> You'll yeah. be a motorcycle vigilante. <laughs> I mean, hey, if, if you're going to try, it's a unique novel way to try and uh, court somebody. <laughs> court? <laughs> Court, I would expect from John to be honest. I'm surprised you've thrown that out there. <laughs> yeah, John, please, please watch us. It's, um, I'll, I'll let you know what I think. I'll, I'll search it out. I'm sure it's available somewhere to watch. It's something else. <laughs> John, your last pick. My last pick is the 2005 film The Producers. Obviously, a very well known film. It is based on the original 1967 film of the same name and the Broadway musical, which I believe was 2001. It is the story of Max Bialystok, the producer, or one of the producers in the title. He is not a very good producer, and he's not a very good man either. He spends most of his time basically chasing old women so that they can invest in his Broadway productions, which just never seem to get anywhere. When he hires an accountant, Leo Bloom, Bloom points out to him that he would actually probably make more money if he produced a flop and got people to heavily invest in it. And he says this is a joke, but obviously uh, Mr. Bialystok takes this totally seriously and goes out of his way to find the worst subject for a musical ever and when you're doing that you go for a Hitler musical there's no, there's no two <laughs> ways about it so he, he finds a musical called Springtime for Hitler sees it as being the most divisive horrible it will be so badly reviewed and says right we'll turn this into a musical he gets investors on board and he over invests in it so that therefore when they lose money or when, the film, uh, when it's a flop and it closes after one performance, he will get all the money that's come in and will expect none of the money to actually going out. And basically the rest of the plot takes it from there. It's a, it's a great film because it's based on a great property. The original film is just fantastic. And the, the musical version of it really lives up and pretty much enhances the, the, the 1967 original. You've got Nathan Lane in the main role and you've got Matthew Broderick as Leo Bloom. You've got the introduction of the likes of Yuma Thurman, who is Ula, the Swedish secretary, who decorates their offices all white. Everything, every, mm. absolutely everything is white. And a nice wee touch, we have Will Ferrell in a role which is just absolutely brilliant. He plays the Nazi who wrote the, the screenplay and he has got this deep and unending love for Hitler and <laughs> an equally venomous relationship with Churchill. Uh, there's obviously the, the famous line is saying Churchill, huh? people you know, say that he was a painter. Hitler, he was a painter. He could do an apartment in an afternoon, two coats. <laughs> just fantastic. And they have to pretend to be Nazis and everything just to actually get the property off them. And oh, it's just, it's absolutely brilliant. The songs in it are just fantastic. You've obviously got the headline Springtime for Hitler song, but there are so many other ones dotted through there. And the, the cast of characters, all the, the various elements, like the they bring in the, the, the director and all these other people into it. And it just totally adds to this spectacle and it's just amazing it's the kind of film that I could sit and watch all day and I could sit and watch Will Ferrell in it all day as well because he's just completely over the top and just love it Is he not up in a roof with loads of pigeons if I remember rightly as well? 
Yes, yes, that's for the interview. I mean, they have to put on the Nazi armbands in order yeah. to, you know, and say that they're part of the party and all this. Yes, no, it's great fun. You guys, I take it you guys have seen this. Yeah, this is a classic. See, I haven't seen this, uh, but I'm very familiar with it uh, because of your watch Kirby Enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I won't say too much about Mayden because it could be quite spoiled if you do watch it, but in season four, uh, Mel Brooks is in it and he's doing a Broadway production the producers and they cast Larry David in it but it starts becoming very very meta and very very clever in how right. it all ties in and I've just been, I've been doing a rewatch of that show recently and we watched that just last week so I probably will be digging out the film soon to watch it because the missus has a copy and she talked she, she said it's worth watching as well so I will watch it soon but yes yeah, it's, it's an interesting choice John, especially the fact I don't know the film haven't seen it but very familiar with it based on that. Mary? Yeah, oh, my dad's a massive Mel Brooks fan, and my first introduction to Mel Brooks is Blazing Saddles, and I was like, oh my god, yeah, you cannot see any of this. And this, this is a more sort of light-hearted kind of approach. And I always remember it's John Barrowman, and he's dyed his hair like Aryan blonde, and he just bursts onto the stage and his opening line is, don't be stupid, be a smarty, come and join the Nazi party. That's how this <laughs> musical kicks off. It's so good, and you're right, Will Ferrell's really, really good in this as well. It's such, oh, I love this film. It's really funny and really, really clever. I am ending on a bit of a, a bummer, I have to say. Well, not a, not a bad film, but it is quite depressing. It is Tom Cooper's 2012 Oscar-winning Les Miserables, to give it its proper title. Tomorrow you'll be whirled away. Who was that girl? Cosette. And yet with you my world has started. Starring the likes of Hugh Jackman as Jean Valjean, Prisoner 24601 for all you theatre geeks out there. You've got Russell Crowe as Javert. You've got Sasha Baron Cohen and Helena Bonham Carter as Madame Monsieur Thenardier. This is a full ensemble, like big budget musical. And of course, you've got Anne Hathaway getting her head shaved, belting out, I dreamed a dream. I really like this. I thought it was an exciting adaptation of the musical. I've seen the musical on stage. I really enjoy the way it's produced on stage. And this was just a really nice rendering of it. It is very bleak. It certainly captures how shitty life was in France at that particular stage in time. Everyone looks like they stink. Their teeth are all black. And it's just, I really enjoyed it. It got a lot of stick. Russell Crowe in particular, they said he was a rubbish Javert because he couldn't sing. I thought he was excellent. I thought physically he was a match for Hugh Jackman, which was an important point of the the casting because they're obviously supposed to be enemies who are capable for each other. And I actually thought his singing was fantastic. You know, Javert is a very flawed, cracked character and that was kind of reflected in his voice. You've got the lovely sort of love story going on between Eddie Redmayne and girl whose name escapes me from Mamma Mia and Mean Girls. Can't think of her name at all just now. Oh, it'll come back to me. Anyways, that's a side love story. There's also a little bit of comedy going on with Sasha Baron Cohen as this sort of ludicrous over-the-top innkeeper who's absolutely skinning his customers for everything they've got. Every song's a banger. I I just think it's great. It, it is miserable, as the title suggests, but I don't think you'll leave it feeling too downbeat. There's some really good songs and some really excellent performances in it as well. Did you guys catch this at the cinema or did you see the live Oscar performance or anything like that? No, I haven't seen the movie or the show. I've seen the film... I think I watched it on DVD or something when it was out. I didn't see it at the cinema. It's an amazing production. It really is. The stories behind it as well, obviously, they did all the singing on set and everything, and some of the the behind-the-scenes work is just... It's just phenomenal to to show the care and attention to something of such a large scale, such as that. I mean, I'm I'm not the biggest fan of the musical, but the film itself, I, I really appreciated just what was involved in it and like you say, Russell Crowe may not be the best singer in the world, but he can certainly give a performance. And that's more than enough in a film like this. It definitely is. It works. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's strange because then you've got Tom Hooper going on to detect cats and you're like, what the fuck? What yeah. happened? Because <laughs> how do you go from making this musical so great and so powerful and then 
like Judy Dench still has hands and the size aren't in proportion. Whatever. Yeah, I just I really like it as a as a film, and I think the the songs are really good as well. It's definitely one for theatre geeks. It's a proper like everything is sung situation, similar to Hamilton. It's not like there's breaks in between songs. So please let us know on Twitter, on Facebook, or whatever else that you care to get in touch. What your favourite modern musicals are? Perhaps you disagree with our list. Perhaps you want to add to it. And in sad film news today we found out that we lost the legendary composer Ennio Morricone and that's I think a real blow for cinema I think he's given cinema some of the best soundtracks you could possibly ask for do you guys have a particular favorite of his that you would like to share Sammy? I, I do indeed and um, mine's is for reasons that aren't film related um, it's the ecstasy of gold which obviously is at the end of Good, the Bad, and Ugly, and it's a very iconic score, a very iconic scene. That's a movie I've actually seen fairly recently, but I was first introduced to the music as a massive fan of the band Metallica, who always play that before they come on stage. And I just, I think it's the, the song, or sorry, the piece of music is synonymous with them, as yeah. it is with the Why film. Why do they play that before they come on stage, just out of curiosity? Do you know, I'm not actually too sure, but it's something they've been doing for the best part of 30 years. And... They've even kind of jammed like a live version of it in the studio and stuff. But when they did their S and M concerts with the, the full live full piece orchestra, they had the orchestra play it live, which was a nice wee touch as well. And yeah. I put a video on my social media earlier of that because it's just incredible hearing it like that. But when at the, at the gigs and that, they just play a tape of it, and sometimes they'll accompany it with the the scene which the wedding did uh, a couple of years ago when Eli Watt, yeah, when he went and died, went and um, done a tribute to him with the music uh, as a nice little nod. So it, was, it wasn't a kind of case of just using this music and that's it. They're clearly, there was a bit of respect to it as well regarding it. So I wouldn't be surprised to have something in store as a tribute going forward with the composer himself dying. But yeah, it's an incredible piece of music, incredible composer, and just with all the kind of different clips and that people can share earlier. Other song, other sort of film, so I didn't realise he did score, like uh, Orca the Killer Whale. I love that movie. And yeah, sad, I mean, sad news. He's a very, very much a legend of his craft. Absolutely. John, do you have a particular piece that kind of stands out for you? Well, he was probably the first composer that I actually took any notice of in terms of music and films because I'd seen the Dollars trilogy when I was reasonably young. And then obviously got to the stage I was had a bit of money, so I started buying music and stuff. And this is one of the first albums I actually bought. It's a, a fistful of dollars and a few dollars more soundtrack. There's 10 tracks on it. So basically uh, the fistful of dollars theme, if you like, was something that I'd never heard anything like it before because there's all sort of yelps and whistles and everything. And it just evokes the film it evokes the the atmosphere and the, the sort of dusty desert area and all that and that was my kind of introduction to him and from there you obviously you can work backwards you can work forwards he did an awful lot of stuff in the 60s as well he was sort of a composer for hire with a lot of italian productions and obviously you're you're looking like once upon a time in america and things like that it's just it's a phenomenal career and one that was right up to date because obviously just the last couple of years he actually got an actual real Oscar as well for his work with Quentin Tarantino in The Hateful Eight, which is a fantastic score as well for yeah. some something like that. I mean, the whole story behind that in itself, because Tarantino had used his music previously in his sort of jukebox soundtracks, because he always said that he would never use a composer. And he wanted to use some of Morricone's music for The Hateful Eight and he went to visit him and he tried to persuade him and Morricone was like, no, nope, sorry, I'm not interested. I'm too old for this shit. I'm not, I don't do anything like that anymore. He says, but I've got one piece here that is just a sort of leftover piece. You can have that if you want. And it was something obviously that was fantastic. Quentin's like, ah, fine, perfect, you know. Next day the phone goes and it's Ariel Morricone saying, I've written another couple of tracks for you. <laughs> and then the up, he did the whole soundtrack for him based on the fact that he was just, the, the moment caught him and he was yeah. sort of fired up to do something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of charted the whole sort of landscape of cinema over the last like 40 years. Some of the films that he's, he's done is just absolutely amazing. I was uh, looking up some of the more obscure ones today. There was one called uh, O.K. Connery, 
from 1967, which is a James Bond spoof movie, <laughs> and it stars Sean Connery's brother <laughs> and no. most of, and most of the cast from the Bond films. So there's M and there's Money Penny in it as well, and this obviously Sean's brother and Ennio Morricone does the score for it. <laughs> Really. It's bizarre, you know, but there's so many of these things out there. He was so prolific. He could just, I mean, if you think about some of the turnarounds in uh, these early Italian productions, they just, they rattled them out like nobody's business. And yet you would have a fresh score to go with each one of these. It's amazing work, it really is. And it all stands up. It stands up in its own as well, which is something that you can't always say about soundtracks to films. They may go particularly well with the visuals, but when you've got something that stands in its own, then that's something really special. Yeah, something you just sit and listen, just listen to it within another album. Yep, aye, absolutely. Yep, yep. It's a sad loss, considering it was so quick as well. I mean, he was only ill. Well, I know he was he was obviously quite old, but it was only a couple of days ago that he'd actually injured himself, and then, you know, that was just him done for. Which is it's very sad, very sad indeed. It's a real loss. Um, I, I think, as, as you were saying, John, I was looking up sort of some of his uh, work earlier on. I didn't realise he'd worked with Pierre Pasolini on Salo. He'd even done the soundtrack to The Thing as well, yeah. which is just hugely yeah. random. But my all-time favourite, obviously, is uh, Cinema Paradiso. Like, I can listen to that soundtrack all day, and it's a film that made me actually go, yeah, I'm really in love with cinema. And the soundtrack definitely is a big part of that as well. So I definitely felt that this morning when I saw the, the news had broke of that. So if you guys have any particular favourite um, Morricone soundtracks that you want to, to let us know of, we're always open to suggestions. And perhaps we could do a Morricone-themed uh, podcast and Simi can watch uh, 100 Days of Sale or whatever it's called. <laughs> he seems the most likely candidate to sit and watch a Pierre Pasolini film. <laughs> we also did The Exorcist 2, which I haven't seen. But that movie has... There's a horror sequel you haven't seen? No, I haven't seen it, unfortunately. But I want to see it because apparently it's one of the most infamous sequels to a movie ever. In what sense? That it's horrific. I don't know, people say it's terrible, but it's also got some kind of cult following to the point that it's... Apparently it's mental. Apparently it's totally insane. Have you seen it, John? I think so. I think I saw it years ago and it didn't make very much sense at all because it's so far removed from the, the original film. Whereas the third one, I think, is more in line with the first one, but the second one is just completely out there. Yeah, it's it's all over the place, and it was one of these massively troubled productions and everything, and the end product was not what they were looking for, really, you know. I think it is actually considered one of the worst films ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even worse than the Psycho sequels. Psycho 2 is good. Psycho 2 is a good film. I'll defend that. I don't think anything will ever live up to the original, but that's it won't, but Psycho 2 is a good film in my opinion. I would defend that, but that's it. <laughs> I will respectfully disagree. Um, if you guys want to get in touch with us, you can on all the usual channels. It is Facebook, it's Twitter, it's YouTube, and you can email us at podcasts at moviescramble.co.uk. That was a question. If you didn't get that, because I'm never sure of the email address. But until next time, as we climb towards episode 30, we will see you soon. Bye from me and bye from the guys.